Britain is a country obsessed with class. But over the past 20 years, we were told that class was no longer important to British society, that it was something for the history books. Britain still seems to be, to a certain extent, a country ridden with class distinctions and class barriers. Do you see it as being inevitable that it remains so? No, I think that the only future of Britain is to try and eliminate class distinctions. And I think those class distinctions are changing. Then the Brexit vote happened. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. Class, we were told, was now the key to understanding why people voted for Brexit. Where do I stand on Brexit? Well, here it goes. The working class have spoke and I'm one of them and I'm with them. Then Theresa May set out to woo the working class. Ordinary working class families. Ordinary working class people. White working class boys are less likely to go to university than any other group in society. We cannot let this stand. But class turned out not to be a big predictor of how we voted in the 2017 general election. It seems that class, and in particular talk of the working class, has been constantly in and out of vogue. But how well do any of us really understand class in 21st century Britain? Are we class clueless? My name is Faiza Shaheen. I'm the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, or CLASS for short. In this series, I'll be exploring the surprising reality of class in Britain today. I'll be speaking to some of the leading experts on how Britain votes, thinks and lives. And I'll be setting out the case for why class still matters and why getting it wrong could spell disaster for our society and politics. Rothes Colliery, Fifeshire, one of the most modern in the world, an old mining superstition is ended for good. Queen Elizabeth II is the first reigning British monarch to go down a mine since George V. Time to have a bite, have a sandwich. One word sums up the crisis. The progressive step, automation. The great problem of today is what to do about the men who are no longer needed. Back in the day, everyone thought of the working class as miners and factory workers. But now there are no miners, and those people who work in manufacturing are more likely to be skilled engineers on higher than average earnings. In fact, people are now so confused about what class is that many quite well-off people still consider themselves working class. So what's going on? In this episode, I'm here to tell you that everything you thought you knew about class is wrong. One of the main reasons we've been hearing about class recently is that people are saying it was the working class who caused Brexit. But that's a myth. According to research by Professor Danny Dorling at Oxford University, 59% of Leave voters were middle class, the social classes A, B and C1, or those who are in managerial or professional jobs. Just 25% of Leave voters were working class in the last two social classes, D and E, unskilled, semi-skilled or casual workers. Great, so that's myth one busted. 
But let's take a moment to talk about those definitions. Not many of us use the language of ABC1s and C2DEs in our normal lives. That's the way that pollsters and government officials talk about class. But what do the rest of us mean when we talk about class in modern Britain? Traditionally, we've talked about upper class, middle class and the working class. But does that still hold up? <laughs> Great. So here at LSE, you ran the Great British Class Survey, um, which was featured on the BBC website in 2011. Professor Mike Savage teaches sociology at the London School of Economics and is an expert on inequality. What differences did you spot between what you found in that class survey and traditional ideas of class? Traditional models of class really think about occupational class divisions, middle and working class particularly, and we kind of had the view that it was probably a bit too simplistic to look at class inequalities in the 21st century. We were very mindful of the fact that there's been a huge kind of growth of inequality and uh, the rich people pulling away at the top. And we were also very concerned about thinking about class, not just about occupation, but about culture and about um, social networks, all these things which people think about when they talk about class. So we had a survey which had all these three components of class in it, economic capital, cultural capital, social capital. We came up with this seven-class model, which um, really pulled the classes apart. So at the top, you had this elite class who were defined by being extremely wealthy. What kind of incomes. wealth? What kind of money are we talking? The average income was about £90,000 a year after tax. So we're talking about, you know, wow. a lot of money, very high savings, you know, £100,000 plus, and houses worth half a million pounds plus. And that was about 5 6% of the population, according to our calculations. And then at the bottom, we had a group which we called the precariat because we wanted to avoid the underclass term, uh, which is characterised by just being extremely poor, uh, not being unemployed. They didn't, fit, they didn't fit the stereotypes of being kind of benefit claimants. Mm -hmm. They were usually working, but on badly paid jobs, um, living sometimes in council housing, but sometimes in kind of poor and occupied housing. So we, we really emphasise the stretching apart of the two extremes. I asked Mike about the groups in between the elite and the precariat. So, working from the top down, there's the established middle class. It's about a quarter, of the, a quarter of the population. They're the people in the obvious middle class jobs. They're well paid, but not as well paid as the elite. So these, you know, these are, these are moderately well off people. Off so what are they? Are they the managers? Maybe, uh, yes. Yeah, Doctors, lawyers, maybe lawyers, some people so like mine. Academics. Middle, middle manager, a lot of academics, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then there are the new affluent workers, people who are well off with good jobs, but they often from a working class background, often hadn't been to university. Um, so they're kind of upperly mobile grouping in many cases. Mm -hmm. So are these the estate agents? Yes, some estate agents, some would be more, yeah. But without the sorts of connections the established middle class have. So what they, do you mean by that in social networks? They, they wouldn't know, you know, a lot of lawyers and doctors and okay. chief executives. Uh -huh. But they have made a, you know, a reasonable career for themselves. And then the technical middle class. Again, well-paid, very skilled people in good jobs. The classic occupation which they did was, a, was an airline pilot. But who don't have the cultural and social connections that the established middle class have. These were the geeks? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> These were geeks, yeah, if you want to call them that. We tried to avoid that label, yeah, yeah. So that's the middle class. What about the working class? Well... Just like the middle class, the working class isn't just one group. When politicians or the media talk about the working class, it's often the traditional working class they're talking about. Mike Savage. Quite a sizable group, 20% or so of the population. And these are often older people. These are the people who used to work in industrial jobs. 
before various industries went into decline in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's a group which is kind of fading away. So the precariat is effectively the new working class. Well, yes, absolutely. The precariat has- and there's one final group that sits between the traditional working class and the precariat called the emergent service workers. Um, and these were young people who often been to university but had not got a secure career. So the economic capital in our terms was not very high. They're often, you know, zero hours contracts, mm-hmm. sort of jobs, even though they had quite a lot of, you know, cultural capital in our terms. And cultural fact, well, capital, so they go to a theatre? Not that kind of cultural. No, mm-hmm. no, we had this idea, that we had this argument that there's different kinds of cultural capital. Yeah. And one of them was kind of cultural capital linked into kind of, you know, being on the social media, keeping fit, liking uh, you know, rap music and stuff. It was that kind of cultural <laughs> capital. <laughs> the kind of culture you consume, whether or not you listen to hip hop, could change which class group you're in. But of course, it's more complicated than that. Dr. Lisa McKenzie is a sociologist also at the LSE who worked on the Great British Class Survey. And a public sociologist. Sounds cool, public sociologist. I am, I'm core. I'm core (laughs) sociologist in the world. You could be an emergent service worker. And, you know, lots of students here at the LSE are, are actually students at the LSE sometimes tell me that they are in the precariat. And they are, I suppose, if we look at this as a discrete value, you know, do you have a permanent job? No. Do you have a permanent home? No. Do you own any property? No. Levels of debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we look at these in just discrete ways, it still doesn't tell us what we need to know about class Mm. because there is also an intergenerational aspect as well. Those young people, those emergent service workers and young precariat students they are also connected to parents and grandparents who are yeah. traditional middle class. So they may not have their yeah. own discrete capital, their own discrete power, but actually they draw in from somewhere else as yeah. well. Now, even though class definitions have changed over time, and even though it can be tricky to work out which class you sit in, it's clear that these social and cultural connections still have a big effect on the way we live and the lives we lead. I suppose this is the way I think about class, and I explain this to my students. It's like a sieve. You know, if we're all in, you know, if we're all in the sieve, who gets sieved out? You know, can you go to university? No, you can't get there. You're, you've been sieved out. Can you go to a Russell Group University? No, so you're sieved out. Can you yes. go to one of the top three Russell Group universities? No, you're sieved out. And then it yes. goes up a level, because I've got students here, working class students from council estates here in London that come to the LSE. So, they, you know, somehow they've managed to stay in the sieve. And then the next level is, can you afford a master's degree? No, sieved out. Yeah. Kids from working class background might have thought if I get if I if if I get to university I've achieved you know I've yes. done something I've, I'm socially mobile, but actually the middle class kids know that it doesn't matter you need to go to particular yeah. universities to really do yeah. well. Yeah. So it's kind of different rules of the game is are understood by different kinds yeah. of people. You know, like like the you know the the contents of what comes through a sieve, you, you're getting smaller and smaller, and the people that stay in the sieve are getting bigger and bigger, and it's more difficult for them to fall through the sieve. At the end of the day, class is about power. Who's got it, who wants it, and how power changes hands. So let's talk about an idea I haven't mentioned yet, social mobility. My name is Bouquet, B-U-C-K-E-T. <laughs> no, it's not Bucket, it's Bouquet. This is the idea that if we're born working class, we can become middle class and maybe even make it to the top. 
and the upper classes are supposed to be able to go the other way. But ultimately, this doesn't happen. Lisa McKenzie. So we talk about working class people and, you know, how can they become socially mobile? But we're trying to do that discreetly without looking at anybody else. So it's almost like, what can we do to them? When actually what we need to be looking at is the power relationships between people. Yes. So you can't, so what you can't do is you can't do things. And this is where policy fails. This is where education fails. This is the failure of, of, of our society is we're always trying to do something to the working class while at the same time totally ignoring the middle class and the, and the elites. Our society now is very much based on... You know, it's a game. There's a game going on here. And the middle class and the elites learn how to play that game and then they game that system. But I think, and I think one big shift there was 40, 50 years ago, there would have been some countervailing yes. power from the labour movement, yeah. from trade yeah. unions, that most power is always held by the elite. That's not nothing yeah. new. But there was a sense of, you know, contestation of forces. Yeah. And I think yeah, what has happened is in a way those popular forces have been weakened and as a result, on most measures, it seems to be if you're elite and middle class, you have more power and you know who to talk to, you know how to, be, mm. how to have influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, Grenfell, Grenfell Towers is a classic example yeah. of that, isn't it, really, yeah. in a way which housing policy was driven by certain interests. Yeah. But I, d- I do think, again, we've got to keep talking about this relationship because you cannot understand class if you don't understand that relationship. The middle class that game the system or the strategists, I'm, I'm going to call them, you know, strategists because that's who they are. They, that's what I'm finding that they are. They're strategists. They are actually the problem. It's them. It's not the, it's not the working class. It's the middle class and the, the elites that are actually strategizing because they know the game and they are shaping the game in order, you know, they're, they're, they're cheating, they're fixing it. They're fixing the game. So we can't keep looking at the working class and saying, what can we do to them? Actually, well, we so the to... argument right now is that you also teach them parts of how to do the strategy. They no, also teach not... them to be strategists. No, that's not. That? That, I mean, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to teach. I want to change the game. I don't want to. I don't want to cherry pick. You know the 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 strategists of the working class. I mean, that's what that's that's what meritocracy is really doing. That's what social mobility is doing, but it fails. More on how exactly class affects individual people's lives in the next episode. But let's take stock. What have we learned so far? One of the big lessons we can take from studying today's class breakdown is that our mental image of the working class needs an update. Whereas in the past, the working class were miners and factory workers who were highly unionised. Now they're people who are cooking, cleaning and caring for us or driving for Uber. They're typically not unionised. They're on insecure contracts and they're on low pay. Some of them might be doing different jobs, but the fact is this new working class is as poor as anyone who's gone before them. Secondly, class is about culture as well as economics. Your job and your income can only get you so far And we all know the telltale signs, the class indicators, the things that give it away. Sometimes it's your accent. I don't pronounce my T's sometimes and people get pretty snobby about it. Sometimes it's about museums and plays or fox hunting and the opera for the upper class. It could be the way you dress. But what if there's a bigger telltale sign than any of these? What about race? 
It's not just class we've heard more about in the last few years. The phrase white working class has been on everyone's lips. But why? Is the working class white? Why are we hearing so much about the white working class in particular? I spoke to Omar Khan, director of the race equality think tank Runnymede, to shed light on this discussion. Omar and I talk... Uh, quite often for ages and ages about race and class it's become a bit of a joke with my husband like who are you on the phone to like Omar about race and class and he's like you guys just talk about the same thing again and again Omar introduce yourself I'm a super interesting guy I can talk about things other than race and class but I I am the director of the Runny Me Trust where I asked him if white working class was a useful term we don't think actually white working class is a useful term as you know in 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 our many conversations on this topic Uh, First, we think it doesn't quite get the right analysis in terms of what class looks like today in Britain. It focuses on the the white working class only. It doesn't focus on other forms of working class experience or identity. Um, And it also, of course, only focuses on the white working class. We don't have a conversation there then about the white middle class. And British social attitude surveys and outcomes that we see in Britain Uh, actually show that the white middle class are just as likely to express racial prejudice, for example, as as the white working class. And it's certainly not the white working class who are designing budgets that hit the poorest black women the hardest. It's not the white working class who are in universities who give black students three times fewer firsts. And so, you know, there's this narrative around the white working class that is quite damaging, I think, both in terms of analyzing class in Britain but also about thinking about what kinds of responses do we want, whether that's policy or whether those are forms of mobilization and solidarity across the working class. So the way we talk about the white working class isn't helpful, but how white is the working class anyway? Here's Omar on the numbers. Bangladeshi and Pakistani children are sort of three, four times more likely to be living in poverty than white British households. Uh, If you look at unemployment rates, uh, all ethnic groups are more likely to be unemployed, especially uh, black groups and also Pakistani and Bangladeshi women. The analysis is is of of the working class is is very very flimsy. And one of the things I think it misses out is actually urban disadvantaged uh, working class experiences. And I think it's because our notion of the working class is of a certain kind of job and a certain kind of community that doesn't necessarily in- include London or Birmingham or inner inner city life. There's this sort of narrative that they're all elite cosmopolitan spaces. Um, But if you look at, for example, Tower Hamlets is number one in Britain for child poverty and is worst in Britain also for pensioner poverty. Even Kensington, which, you know, we were supposedly surprised by that outcome, uh, is in the bottom third of deprivation in Britain and is 30% BME. And a lot of those disadvantaged communities, as as we know, are black and minority ethnic. So when they say white working class, who are they talking about then? Because we know, obviously, there's white working class in London as well and in Liverpool and Manchester and in our urban centres. But do, who do you think they're talking about when they yes. say or, or yeah, commonly well, <laughs> when they use that term? When that term is used, who do you think is included in that? Yeah, I think I I agree that there is a uh, the, uh, very large white working class in parts of London and other cities, but it seems to me, especially this narrative around Brexit, that this left behind population are in northern towns uh, where there used to be, say, mining jobs. Even if we look at those towns, so for example, somewhere like Oldham, actually, you know, you have a large Pakistani and Bangladeshi population in Oldham that's actually doing worse than the white British population, has even higher levels of disadvantage. So, so I mean, why do you think it is? Because given that it doesn't play out in the data and given that there's so much shared experience amongst all of the working class you know, irrespective of race. Why do you think this has become such a popular phrase? 
Well, I think it advantages uh, certain uh, groups of people, especially those who seek to divide us. I mean, it's an easy way to divide the white and and black working classes is to blame the black working classes and migrants for the position of the of the white working class. Um, and it's as I say, I don't I don't think we see much in terms of the way of solutions uh, for those populations. Sometimes in the public debate about class, we're told misleading stories, stories that divide the working class and pit groups against each other. One of those stories is that white working class boys on free school meals are doing worse at school than black working class boys. The newspapers sometimes point to this as a reason why we should pay more attention to the white working class. But is it as simple as that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is true that class still determines outcomes in Britain. And I I think it's fair to look at outcomes for for white working class uh, pupils and white working class people in, in the labor market. It is true that white boys on free school meals have the worst outcomes, but only by a percentage point or two worse than black boys on free school meals. Whereas white boys not on free school meals have attainment levels that are sort of, you know, 30 points higher. So the, the real gap is not between white and black people of working class background. The real gap is between white working class and white middle class pupils. And that's where you see the greatest gaps. The other thing I would say is it's actually a mistake to use free school meals as a proxy for working class. So only around 10 to 12 percent of white pupils are on free school meals. Now, most people would be surprised to hear that the working class in Britain is only 10 to 12 percent of the population. So free school meals is not actually a a proxy for class. It's a proxy for deprivation and deprivation of kind of the most sort of extreme source. And interestingly, if you if you look at the data, 40 to 50 percent of some Bangladeshi families are on free school meals. So it again, it highlights the, the levels of, of deprivation in those communities. And again, I think we say that we're talking about class, but is that what we're actually talking about? So two things. First, the working class is a lot less white than you might think. And secondly, working class people of all races actually have a lot in common. And maybe that's one of the ways we can fix some of the divides in our society. Omar Khan. We need to foreground the shared experience. So the specifics might not be the same, but the shared experience of lacking investment in their communities, lacking jobs, higher unemployment rates, local authorities and central government not responding to that lack of investment. In fact, making it even more of an arm's length away through things like privatizing um, uh, management committees on housing associations. Not only a lack of investment, but a lack of voice and almost a stigmatization of that voice, a lack of taking seriously the voices of people who sound undereducated to the Oxbridge elite, people who don't have networks with the Westminster bubble. And that, too, is a similar experience. You know, these these individuals at Grenfell Tower in Kensington are a mile away from Westminster, but they may as well be a thousand miles away, just as the people in working class neighborhoods in the north. The way I see it, the quality of the discussion about the white working class has been as poor as our discussion on race. Instead of focusing on structural inequalities and the barriers to equal participation, we stereotype the white working class and turn this into a cultural war. For me, this looks like a case of divide and distract. The real culprits, the super rich, don't want the multi-ethnic working class to band together. So the way we talk about class is hopelessly divisive. During the rest of this series, I'll be making the case that we need to focus on the shared interests of everyone who's been on the wrong end of inequality and discrimination.
So that's the big picture on class. Coming up next week, I'm heading back home to East London to look at how class still shapes our life chances and to figure out what my own class identity is. So I just came out of that chat with Mike and Lisa and realised I've never taken this British class survey. Listen to hip-hop and rap, yes. Uh, okay. So I am... If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe in the podcast app of your choice or leave a rating on Apple Podcasts.